0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Teacher's Point of View. Uh, I've got a fantastic guest on this episode, Daniel Reynolds, who's uh, a head teacher in Japan and uh, he's got a fantastic career. I mean, he started his life in a small town in Canada, uh, sort of wanted to see what it was like to teach internationally. So he's, he's travelled to a couple of countries and ultimately taught out in different countries. But now he's a head teacher in Japan. Really like looking forward to evolving education. I mean, he's he's really involving kind of the the softer skills, which are now essential skills in some respects. And he talks about the importance of interpersonal skills and confidence and and kind of uh, sort of collaboration in in the way education should really be taught. Um, Please, please give us, uh, give us a like and a subscribe if you liked the episode. Uh, but yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you. Hi, Daniel. What a wonderful pleasure to have you on the Teachers' Point of View podcast this morning, uh, well, afternoon for you. Um, I know, obviously, you've you've like you've been really busy sort of recruiting for January, and, um, but I, so I really appreciate you kind of taking out the time and, and having a conversation with me about your journey. I mean, you've obviously done it all, haven't you? You've travelled the world and you're originally from Canada, now you're in Asia, teaching out there. Um, could you just kind of introduce yourself, Dan, and, and kind of your experiences in teaching and what made you get into it?
1: Sure. Um, yeah. No. I'm originally from small town Canada. Like I say, I've got a. I came from a town of 200 people. So when I do go home and you know, knowing that I've lived on several continents, it is kind of strange for the people I Um Got into interested in teaching from a really young age. I've actually my mom still has it framed with this little piece I wrote when I was in third grade about how I wanted to be a teacher when I grew up. Um, probably due to the fact that most of my, you know, other than my family, most of the role models that I follow, I just was lucky enough to have some fabulous teachers when I was young and something I wanted to continue. So I went to school. Um, I went to university and I uh, graduated, um, with a physical education teaching qualification. Um, after that, I was, I mean, I, that kind of leads into why I went overseas because Canada was really, there were a lot, it was a struggle to get jobs. When I graduated, the, the teaching market was pretty flooded. So I, uh, decided to go overseas and I'm so glad that, you know, those forced opportunities were, were put my way because
0: Um, that launched my career. Yeah. Awesome. So where where have you traveled to? I mean, obviously you, you started in Canada, but what was your first move? Like what school did you kind of go for and what made you go for that opportunity?
1: Yeah. So I actually, I landed in Japan, um, in 1994. So a long time ago, I ended up in Japan. Um, I was actually teaching, I came over because I didn't know about international schools at that time. So I came over, I just wanted a little bit of adventure. And so I came over to actually teach English and then Suddenly, there was an advertisement in the local English newspaper that called the Japan Times for a PE teacher at what was called St. Moore International School in Yokohama. I applied. There weren't very many qualified PE teachers in the country at the time, so I ended up getting the job, and that was was the start of my career. Um, Then I had an opportunity to move literally across the road over to Yokohama International School, and that's where I actually got really excited about leadership because the head of school at the time, Neil Richards, Um, just, you know, Mr. Charisma. And I thought, gosh, I want to be like that guy someday because, uh, you know, he just, he was just one of those people you could sit and talk to for hours. So, um, yeah, so that's, I went over to Yokohama International School. I was there for a decade. Um, that's where I really got, like I said, and Neil was such a great guy as being a mentor. He's, you know, I know you want to be in leadership. I think you've got the qualities to be a leader. So, afforded me lots of different opportunities. So I actually went as a PE teacher and then I became the head of department. And then, um, I actually became the curriculum coordinator for IGCSE we were running at the time. And then an opportunity came up to be activities director. So I took that. So I got a lot of chances to have a lot of different leadership opportunities. Um, that in turn led from to the opportunity there was a, a principal job in, uh, Hokkaido, which is the northern part of Japan. So I took that job as my first senior leadership position, Um, went up there for three years, and probably wouldn't have left Japan. I love Japan, actually. But you know, your children are your children. And my son being Canadian, my son was playing ice hockey here in Japan. Um, He kind of outgrew Japanese ice hockey, and he wanted to pursue that, you know, later on and into university. So we moved actually to the United States, we were looking in North America and Europe. Um, A fabulous school in the United States came up. It was called the International School of Indiana, which, you know, most people go, like, there's an international school right in the middle of, you know, the Midwest in the United States. But it was started by Lilly Pharmaceutical. Lilly is one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies, and they wanted to bring in foreign researchers. So they had this, so there's a school that has like 56 nationalities right in the heartland of the United States. Um, And then an opportunity came up in Switzerland, and my wife had actually gone to Switzerland kind of right after her university years and spent a couple of years there. And, um, when the opportunity came up in Switzerland, she's like, um, we're going. So, so we went, um, and then we're there for a couple of years. I worked in corporate education, which was fantastic. It was, it taught me a lot and it taught me I don't want to be in corporate education was one of the other things, but it did teach me, I think, leading into a headship about how to run a school as a business because, you know, our international school, private schools are a business. So that gave me, I think it gave me a better business sense. And then Tokyo International School um, had an opening. I knew the school, I knew people there. And when I applied, um, I ended up getting that job. So that's where I am today.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, Obviously Switzerland. I mean, you said corporate um, education. What what does that mean?
1: It means that it's it's an own school and one of the, you know, I don't think many people will admit it, but one of the aims of a corporate education is to make a profit. Um, and you know, education, trying to make a profit and and mixing that with education is not usually a very good recipe for success. So, um, yeah, everything was put through a lens of if it doesn't make profit, we probably shouldn't do it that way. As opposed to, you know, if it's not educationally sound, we shouldn't do it that way. So I went back into nonprofit education, which is literally based on, you know, what's best for kids as opposed to let's make sure we're making a little bit of money here.
0: Yeah, fantastic. What what do you think like traveling the world and teaching in different countries really done for you in your career?
1: I think it's just opened my eye. I mean, coming from, you know, like I said, my my beginnings are really interesting because I come from, you know, a rural place in Canada, 200 people. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody looks the same. Um, I go off into international school and oh my gosh, you know, there's 65 nationalities at my current school. Um, I think it just opened my eyes to what a, you know, how fantastic the world can actually be. And my son actually just came in from university because they've decided to go online for the whole year. And we were talking about, we were actually had this exact same topic. We were talking about, he says how lucky he feels to have grown up in international schools because when he talks to the local kids in university, they just... You know, he, he, he actually, if it's not nice to say, but he said, I feel sorry for them because they just really haven't had the experiences that I have um, getting to know people from all over the world. So,
0: yeah. I mean, what, what about international schools in particular then? Because um, they, they are very different to normal state schools, aren't they? What, what do you think the biggest differences are?
1: You know, I think people have asked me that a lot and why. I mean, I was offered jobs to come back to Canada to, uh, to teach. And uh, I think one of the things, one of the things that's obviously different is that you do have, you, you get to have a blend of the best is what I like to say. So, you know, we're not bound by national curriculum, which is can be really hand-tying. If we feel like, you know, for our PE curriculum, we use an Australian curriculum. For our mass curriculum, we use something. That, I mean, even though we're an international baccalaureate school, we can pull from all over the world. So we use everyone's expertise and we kind of pick from the best. And uh, I think that's one of the great things as a learning perspective for kids. You know, we really, we really do go out there and try to find the best situation that we think that's going to help kids be successful. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is that what I love, I mean, it's kind of interesting. People always ask me, and it's a crazy thing to say, but I've been in international education for over 25 years now, and I've literally never broken up a fight. And people say, well, what do you mean? And I said, the kids just get along so great because nothing is normal. You know what I mean? Everybody's different. Everybody does things in different ways. So everyone accepts and there's such an acceptance in international schools that there's no normal or there's no correct way of doing things. So if someone does something a little bit different, nobody gets bothered by it. Where back when I was in Canada, if you were a little different and you did something different or you acted a little differently, you stood out and you had problems. Um, That doesn't happen in international ed
0: yeah i mean the first point that you made was about kind of having your uh, hands tied with, with the curriculum um oh sorry not having them tied and you know what it is quite remarkable because obviously a lot of uk educators that i've spoken to and uh they sometimes feel like their, their hands are tied with the curriculum, you know, because, and, and they feel sometimes they don't always get the best out of their kids because their hands are tied with, with the curriculum because the government want them to do it in a particular way or um, they have expectations. But um, I mean, how effective do you think that is for you and your students? Like, do you feel that you can have, you have the flexibility to tailor it to the students more effectively, like, in, like on an individual basis?
1: Oh, 100%. And I listen. You know, I've been, like I said, I've been listening to your podcast and since since you asked me to come on. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. I really like it. And so I listened to it on the train, and I think one of the themes that I hear coming out in a lot of the podcasts is that you know we have these people at the government level who are setting education and setting education standards, and their only qualification was they went to school. Um, they don't have they don't have a background in education. They really don't understand, you know, what makes sound good education. So that they have the ability to make all these decisions around education just absolutely blows my mind. (laughs) Um, And we don't have that. And that's one of the things I love about international schools in in particular, because, you know, we have our own board of who, and I'm lucky at my news, my current school because we have some educators on our board, but literally all of our discussions come around to what is going to be best for student learning and nothing else. I mean, conversations don't revolve around anything else. It's all about student learning and what's going to be best for student learning. And like I said, and we can just pull from the world and we do follow the international baccalaureate curriculum, but we, we make, the IB is a fantastic program. Again, I've been with it for 20 some years. If I didn't like it, I would have left it. But I think the, what I love about the IB as well is that you can tailor it to your school. It's not a, it's not a one size fits all. You take the philosophies from it, but then you build within it.
0: So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's really different, isn't it? And uh, yeah, thanks for obviously watching the podcast. Though. <laughs> it's, what, it's not- <laughs> yeah, and I'm not doing it just
1: to make you feel, I mean, I, I literally started, I you know, I thought, I, I initially started to listen, I thought, okay, what am I getting myself into? And then after I started listening to the first one or two, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting stuff. I'm, I really want to hear what what other people are doing in other parts of the world. So, and you always pick up a nugget. Every time you hear, every time I listen to a podcast, I always pick up something. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, I can use that.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, so, I mean, what about in Japan then? Like, do, do you have an education secretary similar to the one in the UK? I mean, is it completely left to educators personally? Or um, how does it work in, in, in Japan?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're not, so we have what's called school status in Japan, but we're not there's school status, which means they recognize us as of the school, but we're not what's considered what would be called an article one school where we're governed by the, by the education authority. Um, so, you know, even when the COVID things come out, I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, the ministry of education would say, you know, Japanese schools, article one, you need to do it this way. All of you, they're called Gakko or school status schools. You should do it this way, but if you feel like you don't want to, you don't have to. <laughs> so we, you know, they, we have some guidance from, and they give advice, but they're not top down towards us, which is fantastic. So, um, yeah. And and we're obviously very, very different than the Japanese system. I mean, Japanese system is far more traditional. Um, you know, we're, we're obviously not traditional at all. I would say, you know, we're, we're way out there on the non-traditional side of things. So, uh, when you think about how old school education, so
0: Okay. I mean, so w- when you say traditional, do you mean like they're standing at the front of the classroom, like with writing things on the board? I mean, you've obviously got interactive whiteboards and stuff. Is that the kind of main difference?
1: Yeah, that and, and it's, a you know, the old idea of re- regurgitation of facts, right? I mean, I remember when I went to school, you had to remember, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm just going to use, you had to remember when Columbus sailed across the ocean and got to North America and those, you know, re- the remembrance of all those facts were, you know, education has changed a lot and it's a lot more about critical thinking it'd be more like well why did Columbus bother doing that in the first place and you know what did he gain out of it as opposed to just remembering the facts there would be interesting information around um, and you would have I think one of the things that's very different about our education is um, when I walk into a classroom at our school for example I always say so what are you learning guys and they'll tell me I say well why are you learning that and they'll tell me why they're learning it. and they say, well How are you actually learning that? And they'll explain that. And if students can explain the what, the how, and the why they're learning something, um, that to me is true education as opposed to just remembering a bunch of facts and regurgitating them down on a a piece of paper.
0: Which is what I kind of feel like I did. I mean, i remember cramming in information the night before an exam, like when I was in school when. um, it's, I mean I don't remember it now, so this doesn't really work with it. Um, it's, but I mean, yeah, I think education in some respects has to change along with what you're, what you're saying because I think it's important for kids to know why they're learning something. I mean a lot of the times if you ask a child why they're doing algebra, they'll be like oh well, I don't even need it in the future, I don't know why I'm doing it. You know and, and, it's, and it's remarkable, I mean it, they should be taught why or make things that are relevant to them or like they feel like they've got some purpose or direction to work towards you know. Um, I mean, talk to me a lot about the last nine months. Then, I mean, how difficult has it been being a head teacher in Japan in a, in sort of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be I'm going to be the anomaly on your group here because it actually hasn't been so bad. Um, so it's actually been quite. You know, you know, obviously we had our teething problems with it, and we did, I don't I think when we when you know COVID first hit, we didn't really understand the science behind it. So Japan, like every other country. Um, March, basically April or February 28th, March 1st said, everyone's closing their doors. So everybody we closed and we went to online learning literally the next day. Um, We learned a lot through that process because we, um, I think one of the things that I noticed with online learning is we all know about zoom fatigue, right? I mean, you probably have it. I have it all the time. And so this thing you could do synchronous learning online with kids for eight hours a day, five days a week, that didn't last very long, <laughs> um, so we realized that the best way to approach online learning was a nice blend of synchronous and asynchronous learning. So you would, you know, you would meet up with your teachers, you do something, and then you'd get something, and you'd go away with it, and then you'd meet up with your teachers a little while later, and they would talk about what you had been working on and what you had been doing, and so on. So um, we also realized that an eight-hour day is quite a long day, so we actually cut back on the amount of time. We were only about four or five hours a day. Um, And we were telling kids, you know, learn something new, learn how to cook something, learn how to do, you know, that was, I think that was one of the advantages as I keep hearing on your show of COVID is that people started to pick up some skills that maybe they never would have actually had a chance to do and spend more time with family and so on. So um, in that sense, it wasn't challenging. Um, It was, you know, we had our challenge and I think we overcame them. I think one of the things, again, that we had a great advantage of and I hear it on your show a lot, is that you know, obviously being at an international school, we are a private school. Many of the majority, well, all of our families are quite not if they're not wealthy, they're still very well off. So for the fact that you know, we our students did have the opportunity to have a device to to do some learning. There everyone had internet at home. So I, I I can imagine I hear some of the people, and that would be such a struggle that you know, how how do you help these, you know, under families? Um, be able to have access to education. So we didn't have that struggle either
0: yeah i mean you were very lucky obviously you've heard some of the stories on my podcast and some of the kids i mean in the uk one school that um needed 200 laptops for 200 deprived children and um, they only got 11 from the government you know i mean it, there's a massive budget deficit in, in schools in general and um obviously they didn't get enough support and it's a shame isn't it because obviously these children are the future of of the world aren't they the future doctors the future lawyers the future prime ministers accountants you know like and and we kind of need to give them the opportunities and it's a shame because i feel like the, the the gap between the advantage and disadvantage keeps growing bigger and um and, and covid has just highlighted that massively um but I, I think know, another no oh, sorry
1: on. I was just gonna say I think another advantage we had was that you know within our within our parent body um we do have some experts too right I mean you know when one of our parents is actually a pediatrician who specializes in infectious diseases in children who works for doctors without borders so literally I had that medical reference to go to immediately. I would say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And then as the data started to come out and show that you know, especially younger children were less susceptible to COVID, um, she did a whole presentation, an online presentation to our parent community. And that really put our parents at ease to say, okay, yeah, school is the best place for our kids. And you know, unlike influenza and some other things, schools are not the breeding ground of this, of this disease um schools are actually if you wear masks and you wash hands and you do all the protocols they are very safe places and the kids should be in school so that was nice yeah for sure
0: was it was it quite scary obviously china it originated from china covid didn't it and you're obviously a neighboring country i mean how scary was that when you first heard the news
1: yeah I, a little bit but having you know i think i had the advantage of even though i was new to the school i mean it, last year was my first year as head of the school right so it was like wow this is but having the advantage of having lived in Japan previously and knowing the country, um, in all honesty, I know, I knew that Japan was all, I mean, you know, if, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to come to Japan, but you know, everything is sparkling clean. Um, everyone's wearing masks as soon as October rolls around anyway, because they don't want to The idea in Japan is you always protect your, your, the other person. So if I'm feeling sick, I wear a mask. you, masks have been uh, they're nothing unusual here in the country so it, w- it was a little scary and it started this you know it was it was something obviously we were concerned about it coming in from China but I just had a sense that the Japan, you know the Japanese population would do the right thing and we'd keep it under control so
0: yeah fair enough I mean what do you think like the future of education looks like obviously with everything that's happened this year it's cha- I mean I can i can imagine that so there's a certain things that you wouldn't go back to. I mean, what, what does it look like for you going forward?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of changes. And I think, you know, I think COVID, as bad as it has been, and I've heard it from some of the other educators, there have been some good things that have come out of it. And a good friend of mine, uh, James McDonald, who's now the head of Russell's, um, he wrote an article called The Ten Virtues of the Virtual. And, you know, and, and yeah, there was a lot of things in there. I mean, kids had to learn some resilience. Kids had to learn um, some, the kids had to learn how to be creative. And there were several things that we got out of it. What I see the future of education being is, I think, one of the things I loved about, I am anti-exam. So <laughs> I was really glad when all of the exams got, got canceled. And I'm hoping that that will be a trend moving into the future because as an educator, I don't understand if if part of our job is preparing kids for the future. I don't know when in a working situation you put a kid in a room all by themselves. They can't speak to anybody. They can't use any resources and they have to remember everything they've learned over the last year or two and put it down on a piece of paper. Um, So yeah, I, I would love to see education move into a more, you know, collaborative project-based type assessments as opposed to, you know, really high-stakes exams assessments. That would be a, I think that would be a big step forward for education.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, in some respects, I agree. I think exams, a little bit dated, aren't they? I mean, there, there's, I mean, if you look at sort of the last 30 to 50 years, I mean, you've always had exams. But with times and the industry changing in the world, the exams, I don't personally think they always reflect like a, someone's ability to do well in, in, a, in a particular job, you know? I mean, um, I was I went to university, whatever, but it didn't actually have any relevance to what I'm doing now, you know? And and there's people with degrees that are doing something similar to me that probably aren't doing as well or whatever. I mean, it just very much depends on you, like, um, as an individual, doesn't it? And I think, yeah, like if there was more things that were more practical or they could actually speak, some people are better at speaking than writing things down, aren't they? Um, and, I, and sometimes I feel like the people that I do really well in exams aren't always the best suited for the job because they have no interpersonal skills, you know? So it, it doesn't always show like or give a true reflection on a person's ability. Um, I mean, what what's the, I know you said group assessments, but I mean, what would that entail? Like, what do you think the, the exam style needs to change to?
1: yeah no and I mean I think you you hit it i I think you know we've we've been so focused in education for such a long time on what we call you know academic ability and i and i still i i you know i'm i, I still there is definitely i'm not saying that we should just throw academics out of education um there's a there's you know there's a high value on on having knowledge and having and learning all of these skills that come along with academics but i do you know, interpersonal skills, as you said, I mean, if you talk to any one of the employers out there, they say that the thing that's missing from young people coming out of schools, in particular universities, are those interpersonal skills. And if you, you know, I think we should be teaching kids leadership. I mean, I, I, for example, here's an example we have at our school that we have this, um, in our middle school, we have something called advisory. And I just said immediately when I got to the school, well, I want a piece of that. So with the sixth grade, I teach I teach a five uh, five week mini unit on grit. So they learn, I mean, it's all about perseverance and resilience. Grade seven, I do a mini unit on justice. You know, you guys, we have a lot of diplomats kids. We have a lot of these people who are going to be future world leaders. When you get out in the world, it's your responsibility to make sure that there's justice for all and that everybody gets a fair shake. And then in grade eight, I do a leader. I do one on leadership um, there. We, we only go up to eighth grade. So you guys are the oldest ones in our school. So, we're going to talk about leadership. I'm going to give you some strategies. And then I expect you to take action and go out there and be the leaders of the school. And interestingly enough with that group, um, because, you know, in one of the big, uh, one of the big catchphrases in education right now is called agency and letting students, you know, be creative and take their own action. So I got to get, I got a group of students together and said, Our school has a really strong mission has a really strong vision but we don't have a set of values we use the id learner profile we do anything you know what three words encapsulate encapsulate us as a school and this group of leaders went around they did some They talked to people they did some things and now our school has these three words that have little definitions around them that are going to guide us moving forward and um, i think that's allowing students to have that say and take that leadership know a really important thing and what's going to drive our school potentially for years to come is really important in education.
0: Yeah I mean in some respects like COVID has kind of been a blessing in disguise hasn't it like it's kind of opened a lot of educators eyes and um, I feel like in some respects in the UK there's a lot of people that kind of want to move away from the traditional systems and they want to like have the flexibility to to work on what's best for their children and obviously you may have seen in, in some of the podcasts but Um, Out in the UK we have a very generalised system, like we have a system that kind of is catered, it's not catered for all, like it's kind of generalised throughout the UK and there's people that are competing in rural areas to people that are in in, in inner city London and um, it's it's obviously a complete, I mean you're not going to get the best out of these children because you don't really know them and you're not doing what's best for them and tailoring the education based on them and I think what's quite nice about what you've said is that you have the flexibility to tailor it to your students and I mean how much of a difference do you think that makes for your students?
1: Oh, I think it makes a world of difference. I mean, like I said, everything that, you know, the only decisions we have to make are, is this really beneficial to student learning? We don't have to worry about whether it's going to meet, you know, some type of standardized test or whether it's going to do, you know, meet this specific standard that the government has given us as part of our accreditation process. Um, It really just leads us to be able to lead, you know, everything focused, the student always at the center, everything focused around learning. And I think that's another thing I would like to hopefully COVID is when you talk about school accreditations, when you talk about inspections and rating these schools from great to bad. um, I I have, I really struggle with that idea as well. I mean, why would you not just go into a school and say, you know, here are some things you're doing really well. Here are some things that we have identified that maybe you could work on. Um, But I think a lot of the process needs to be, and we've actually just changed our, we had a teacher appraisal system, but I've done a lot of work with some of my fellow fellow, um, heads, international school heads, and we're trying to move, we don't call it an appraisal system anymore. We call it a teacher self-reflection process. So literally our teachers go through this self-reflection process and they get student feedback. We, you know, they do surveys with the students. How's it going in class? What what do you like? What don't you like? What could be better? All these kind of things. And, uh, and that in itself I think leads to good practice as opposed to someone coming in from the government with a clipboard and check checklist to say yeah you're doing that you're not doing that so um i'm hoping because a lot of these inspections haven't been able to happen because of covid um maybe that people can find an alternative to that
0: yeah i mean in the uk i doubt it i mean it's uh, too highly regarded, unfortunately, in this country. And I think we are part of days, of, like, I mean, I, I, it's not just yourself, but leaderboards in schools. I mean, you're, all you're going to do is like put the really tough schools, the schools that are struggling, you're going to make it even more difficult for them to to get better because nobody wants to work there. Nobody wants to send their children there. No, do you know what I mean? And it's, uh, it's it's only it's making things a lot more difficult for certain schools. And uh, obviously, we want everyone to improve, don't we? We want the, the disadvantaged children to have a chance.
1: We would never label a child you know what i mean i don't understand why you would label a school we would never label a child well you know you're no good you can't do anything for the rest i mean we've understood how wrong that is and we've understood how wrong traditional education has been in that case too because you know as you said if you did really well on exams you were a good student and if you didn't do well in exams you weren't a good student well maybe that student had a really creative aspect and we know that you know for lack of a better term, people who've gone out there and been highly successful, a lot of times their educational, you know, their education prosperous or whatever you want to call it, wasn't, they, they weren't the best student in the class. They actually just had a lot of other attributes there. So, yeah, I think you have to, uh, like you do with students and you try to find the good things and what they can, you know, what they can excel in. I think you could do the same thing with schools.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what is it like, it looked for you then i mean what's your what are your plans going forward
1: yeah i think our plans going forward again um you know one of the big initiatives that we started this year and it's part of the international baccalaureate is something called service learning so we you know we are from very our students are it's every we're from very privileged um i don't know what backgrounds whatever you want to say and uh We've lear- we want our students to not just go out there and, and, you know, understand that there are these charities and there are these service, but actually learning what service is, why it's important, why, especially from their, you know, from their advantage background, why it's important that they go out there and do something and make a change. And so we've had, we basically put a, around a bunch of themes around our school and said, you know, um, go find go gravitate under one of these themes and create a group and then come with up with some ideas of what you want to do to take action around this. So we've got some really, and I mean, some of them around gender equality, some of them around environmental issues, all, all these things. And our students are working and they're making plans on how they can go out and make a difference in the world.
0: Yeah, amazing. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's obviously amazing. I mean, like it's, it's quite nice to obviously like share your journey. I mean, you've obviously gone through quite a lot and it's, it's nice to see your perspective because obviously when I speak to educators across the world, I mean, everyone's got their own views and their own opinions and you can obviously take a lot of nuggets from what, you, what you've said. And I think in the UK, I, I do feel like the system does need to change just a little bit. I mean, what, what do you think needs to be done? I mean, obviously just as a whole in, in the country, like what, where does the education need to go?
1: I think in every one of our countries that, you know, the people who lead education need to be educators. So if you're, going to, if, you, if you're going to have, you know, an education secretary, that education secretary better have been, you know, gone through the ranks, been a teacher, probably moved up into some type of leadership role in education, understood it from all sides so that they have, you know, they have a knowledgeable perspective as opposed to just being someone who's a, who's, I heard it on your podcast today, um, you know, is a lifetime politician. Um, those people don't, those people shouldn't, I wouldn't want those people to also be, you know, the head of the, of the health organization. I want to, I want that person to have been a doctor or, you know, gone through the health ranks as opposed to just being a minister. So I think it's really important that when we put people, you know, when governments put people into positions of responsibility, that they make sure that those people actually have been, have gone through it lived it and and know what they're talking about so they can make the best judgments for people yeah for sure i mean that i think again we're probably a little bit a
0: long way from that because um in the uk we have an 18 to twenty twenty four 24 month kind of lifespan for an education secretary and they kind of move on to the next kind of whatever cycle they are in, in politics and uh, i mean it's a shame because yeah they don't know what's what's best for the, for the schools and Um, I think we overall you need a unanimous educator that is going to be the education secretary like you said and it's so important because we want to do what's best for these kids and the future of our economy and and we've got to get the right people in to to make the right decisions, you know, and I think that's so, so important to the future of education.
1: Well, and that's why, you know, that's why I take my hat off to all the educators who are out there in the public systems around the world. I mean, I, I at sometimes feel guilty because I, you know, I have had a relatively easy path in education and, you know, I I have been in really good schools and I mean, I've learned a lot and and I try to, you know, I try to do what I can for my group of kids, but I really take my hat off for those educators who are so dedicated to kids. And even when they, you know, even when they totally disagree with what's going on around them and things that are being pushed on them, um, they, you know, they just kind of grin and bear it and they know that what they're doing is great for kids and um, they just continue on with it. So yeah, and I always look, I mean, I heard on your show that I was listening to today, but I always look for those type of educators too. If, if someone wants to work in our school who has gone through the ranks and has, you know, worked at places that were relatively tough and knows about kids, then yeah, I, have a, I have a deep admiration for them. So,
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask you actually, what, what kind of things do you look for and what kind of traits do you look for in teachers to, to take them on in your school?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, for me... You, you you have to be a good teacher, but first and foremost, you just have to be a good person. I mean, we all know that teachers are such a huge role model for kids. Like I said, I became a teacher because my teachers were such fantastic people, and they were great role models to me. So, first and foremost, I just look you you you've got to be a good person. And I I go back to you know the the head that I got hired with in Yokohama when he would go out hiring, he said, "I'm going to bring back a few good eggs," and I've never forgot that because I, it's totally true. You need to bring back people who are you know, committed to kids, committed to teaching, but are also enjoy being around children and, and want to do things with them and, and, you know, put a real passion out there that people can follow. So I really look for those type of educators that just, you know, are passionate about education, passionate about kids, you know, are just kind, empathetic style people that can be a real role model for kids is first and foremost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, did you you find it that much more difficult to recruit this year? Um, I don't know what your recruitment was like this year, but if you needed people, do you find it was harder to attract people to come over to Japan?
1: Yeah, no, actually. I mean, I think, again, because Japan has, because, you know, in the the grand scheme of how things are going in the world, COVID-19, it hasn't been as bad here as it has been in many countries. So Japan is actually quite an attractive place for teachers to want to come to. So that hasn't been a difficulty. And, you know, I think Japan is one of those countries that's highly rated on people's radar for just wanting to live in for a few years. It's really exotic. It's really safe. Um, there's lots of things about it. So that hasn't been an issue. I think one of the things, it has been a little bit more difficult to retain people, to tell you the truth, because, you know, one of the problems of living and working overseas is some, some of our teachers haven't seen their family in two years. They couldn't go home this summer because if they left, they couldn't get back into the country. Um, So we do have more, we have a higher turnover this year, probably than we've ever had. And literally, it's just because people feel like they need to go back and be around their family. And some of them obviously had, you know, quite difficulty, quite, quite serious health conditions happen in their family, and they weren't able to be there when they really needed to be. So um, it's been more of the retaining as opposed to the recruiting of people. It's been been more of a struggle.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And what about like the students? Because obviously you have to recruit students as well, don't you? For you to kind of make sure that you're, you're staying alive as a school, you've got to make sure that kids go there. I mean, was it more difficult this year to try and attract students to come over to, to, the, to the international school?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we're very lucky in our position that, you know, we're we're one of the... We're a well-recognized IB school that's well-recognized by parents. We have something called the Reader's Writers Workshop out of Columbia University. It's a literacy program that's literally, you know, getting really popular in international schools worldwide. We're one of only five schools that have what's called project status that's been recognized outside the United States as being one of these leaders in the program. So because we have this great, really good reputation, we've actually been quite lucky in keeping now. Some of the other schools that are, and we're quite well established. Some of the schools that aren't quite as well established, um, they've they've really struggled because obviously companies are bringing their expats home and all those kind of things. So I do feel for some of my some of my international educator colleagues who, I mean, we just heard about a school literally last week that's going to close um, that's not far away from us. Just it's been a real struggle for them. So um, yeah, I, I do. I my heart goes out to all those guys because. It is tough times.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, sorry to hear that about that other school, but it's one of those times, isn't it? I mean, this year has been quite tough on, on a lot of people. Um, but I, I mean, obviously, uh, the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was to celebrate the things teachers are doing and educators across the world are doing. And one of the, one of the amazing things that you obviously spoke to me just before we started recording was what, one, of the, one of the things that you do as a school is build schools, don't you? And then that is part of, part of your program. I mean, can you just tell us about the, the amazing stuff that you've done there?
1: Yeah. So we have this school in Cambodia, it's called, uh, so we're, we're TIS, so Tokyo International School. Um, and we have a TIS Cambodia school, but it's called the Tokyo Inspired School. So it was inspired out of our school. Um, you know, I think, as I said, we we're we're, you know, we're, we're very privileged in where we are. And um, we, this was actually, start, un, we didn't even get a chance to talk about it, but remarkably, this was actually started by our parents. Um, our parents, you know, who were a lot of them were into philanthropy and they, they started this school, and we kind of took it over from them. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a school that's in Cambodia. It's it's you know, it's in a place that is is struggling financially. So we pay for teachers, and we pay for a lot of the upkeep. We just we just sent some money over because um, the girls don't have anywhere to change for PE class. So we literally, they said, you know, we need this much money to be able to build curtains so that so the girls can change before PE. And said, it's all yours. we away. We go. So. Um, and how we, how we actually partly fund this is we have a group at our school called kids for kids and kids for kids do all these, it, all of the fundraising ideas are, are created and decided by the students. And then they raise money and then they send it over to the students in Cambodia, um, as a, as a fundraiser. So they went out when they saw this, they're like, okay, we need this much money. Why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? They raise money and they send it over as quickly as possible. And now, now the girls have a place to change so they can, uh, so they can change before they have to go to PE class, which is quite nice.
0: Remarkable. So. I mean, you did some amazing stuff with your children because to get them involved and get them to think about doing charitable work at such a young age, it's phenomenal. I mean, hopefully that is going to like to guide them to do better in, in, when they're older, you know, and I think it's such an important thing to learn from a young age. So, I mean, you're doing an amazing job over there. I mean, like we, we've obviously gone through quite a lot. And I don't want to keep you too long, but is there anything that you want to go through just before we, we end the podcast today?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just think, you know, one of the, one of the things I think we need to do as educators, and one of the things I think we do really well here in Japan in our international schools, we we're a group of um, 28 schools, it's called the Japan Council of International Schools. And it's just been such a benefit to, you know, we all know about collective intelligence. I mean, you know, the more people you put in the room, just the better ideas you're going to come up with. And so I think as educators, we need to build those networks, and you know, and I think we need to reach out to one another and just really support one another. Um, and knowing that, you know, and anybody out there who who is struggling for ideas and would like any help, um, you know, my my door is always open. I accept absolutely everyone on LinkedIn. I think you should, as a as someone in our someone in our position, where maybe we do have the opportunity to help out to people. And um, yeah, I just think we you know we try to. We try to build our network and support one another as much as possible because, you know, inevitably every one of us in education are just out there to try to help kids. So if I can help one of my kids or if we can help one of your kids, it's just helping a kid. That's what we're all about.
0: Absolutely and obviously yeah, educators have been remarkable this year and um, it is about supporting each other because unfortunately we might not get it necessarily from anywhere else and it may be not from our governments or whatever but ultimately teachers, are, you don't get into teaching for money, you get to do it to, to make a difference to these kids don't you and um, as, as a community I feel like you, you've been so amazing and, and, and again like this is what this podcast is all about is to thank all the teachers out there and all the school staff for putting themselves on the front line, but also doing what they can for these children. And um, obviously my hat goes off to all of you and I can't thank you enough. And uh, Daniel, I can't thank you enough for coming on and and sharing your wisdom and, and giving us some nuggets today. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you.
1: Oh, thanks DJ, And yeah, it was, it was, you know, the pleasure was mine and I, yeah, keep up your show. It's it's fantastic. I'm, I'm enjoying every episode so far. So.
0: Fantastic, and obviously keep up the good work. Um, obviously, you're doing remarkable stuff out there. So, I mean, when when I when this uh, all, when this COVID all goes down, I want to come down and meet you in Tokyo. <laughs> you
1: come to Tokyo, and I will show you around. There's absolutely that, that's a that's a guarantee.
0: Yeah, awesome. I'm going to take you up on that. Well, please do. <laughs> all right, well, we'll leave it there, Dan. I know you've got some recruiting to do, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna end the podcast for today. But, uh, but thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Best of luck in. And- yeah, best of luck
1: to all you educators
0: out there. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks, Daniel, for coming on. Uh, it's been a real, real pleasure uh, to obviously get your views and like the kind of things you're doing in education. Um, guys, if you did like the episode, please give us a like and a subscribe. I mean, we've got three episodes coming out every week and we are going to change education, so please, please stay tuned. Thanks.